0: Listening to miscarriage stories with Arden Cartrette. Oh, I nice. love the glasses. Thank I don't know if I've you. seen you wearing the glasses before.
1: No, not all the time. Because I do it when I'm on the computer. Because like I'm on the computer all the time, so all the light and stuff. They're like, use it when you're on the computer reading. And I'm like, I'm oh, best.
0: I have some blue light glasses. I'm supposed to wear because I get really bad headaches looking at the computer, and I just, am like, no, I'm not going to wear the glasses. Uh, yeah, I'm stubborn. <laughs> I suffer
1: with migraines, so I'm with you. So I'm like, let me just—I haven't been wearing them, and I can always tell when the headaches kick up when I don't use them. So I was like, might as well—they're right here. So it was a reminder, like, put them on.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Um, all right, Stephanie, thank you so much for for being here. I know, I know your story. Um, you know, especially I know parts of your story. I'm actually really excited to hear it again in full. Um, you are a doula on the team. You moderate groups. You meet with people one on one whenever I say you're beloved, I really mean it. Like I only get the sweetest messages after people mess um, mess with you, after they meet with you. And it's really heartwarming because in bringing other doulas into the space, I was really careful about who I brought on. And it was about a feeling. I can't explain it, but it's like, I can just feel when people work very similarly to me, whenever they have, um, you know, not even the same experiences, but the way that we think about grief and trauma and the way we approach it. Um, So I'm so grateful that you are here. And I think you've, Well, Cooper is a year, and that's whenever you started, so you've been moderating groups for over a year now, which is so crazy, Um, and I wanted to have you on that way people could get to know you and and hear your story and listen to your very soothing voice um, (laughs) and get to know you a little bit more, especially before doing groups and one-on-ones with you, because I think this connection is what we always build on, Um, so I'd love to invite you just to share your story wherever you feel like it begins. Yeah. So it's
1: weird as I've been thinking about having the conversation, I'm like, where does it truly start? And so I got married in 2018 to my husband, but we've been together since we were 16. So I don't know, give or take, like, I don't even know, 15 years at this point, which is kind of crazy. Um, And we decided just at the point we were at after getting married that we wanted to try to have a child. So I've always been one that was super in tune with my body. So I can pinpoint like when we conceived and I was able to test rather quickly, which I know a lot of people are not because most people just don't know they're pregnant for a while unless you're familiar with like your fertility journey and you know, like your period's always on time. So we decided to conceive 2018, it was December and then I got pregnant the first try. I tested on January 17th and I was testing like most people do before you're supposed to And I went from one day to the next. I got a negative one day and then positive the next day, which was really crazy because almost like as I was anticipating it, I was still like shocked. I was like, oh, okay, this this is real. And then I kept testing um, until I had my first appointment, which was the six week appointment where they just verify the pregnancy and possibility of seeing hearing a heartbeat, but not always the case that because that's really early Um, and. I had somewhat uneventful like pregnancy. So I did have some implantation bleeding in the beginning, which I know some people do, some people don't. um, And kind of just went about my pregnancy. I didn't really have symptoms, which I was surprised by. Um, I was just really, really tired all the time, um, which makes sense because your body's changing so much. And then had every appointment in New York, at least they do an early anatomy scan. So on March, 12, well, April 12th, I believe was an early anatomy scan that I went to. And I'll never forget because the technician I felt like was very aggressive in that, in that moment where she was like pressing on my stomach and trying to make the baby do things that they needed them to do. Um, and from that Friday of April 12th, April 16th is when I experienced my loss practically overnight. So I remember on the 15th, falling asleep while my husband watched wrestling. This is, it's so crazy how much I remember. I fell asleep. I woke up at 9.30 PM. I went to the bathroom and I saw some spotting. And I was like, this is not normal. Um, Because they always tell you what the different colors mean of spotting and things like that. And I called my OB right away. And she said come in, come in in the morning. And I was like, okay. I was still feeling uneasy, but she said, being that you're not at least 20 weeks, the ER is not going to help you. She's like, they're going to make you sit in the ER and wait um, because it's before viability, which is 24 weeks. And I said, okay, I guess I'll wait till the morning. So I'm trusting my OB is, is doing the right thing. But In an instant, things changed because I woke up again in the middle of the night and I was spotting some more. It was a little bit heavier and I had a lot of back pain. I tried to go to sleep, but my husband and I were already looking at each other like this is not right. We're we're gonna lose this baby. Like we both looked at each other like this is what's happening. Um, and so woke up in the morning, thought I had to pee, and I'm like trying to run to the back room because I'm like, I feel like I'm gonna pee on myself, like I'm leaking or something. And I get to the bathroom and what I thought was peeing was actually my water broke. Cause I felt like a pregnant person, like you're always peeing all the time. So I just thought it was, I drank a lot of water or something. Um, but I, I felt the big, like what felt like a waterfall of water. And then I started bleeding heavier. Like I was wiping, wiping, and it just, it just wouldn't stop. Like I needed a washcloth. I needed other stuff. And I saw what looked like clots as I wiped. And I was like, this is, this is not, this is not what this is supposed to look like this late in a pregnancy. And what's worse about that period was like, we had just told our family like the gender. We had just had the early anatomy, which they said was fine. Everything was fine. Um, and now we're in this moment where it's like, what's going on? So, they said for me to go to labor and delivery to triage to the emergency. We had to wait a while because I just was bleeding so much. I was like, there's no way I can get in a car um to go to the hospital. I don't drive. We live in Jersey City and it wasn't far. So we are like, okay, let's just wait a little bit until the bleeding stops a little bit. So we did um got to the hospital around 8:50 in the morning or something like that. And I got there and they sat me down to fill out papers, like five or six sheets of paper, which is not a lot, but it's like, this is an emergency. My husband was frustrated. I was frustrated. Um, They took a while to take me back. And then they eventually took me back to get checked and they made me go by myself, which I thought was strange, but that's what they did. And they checked my cervix. They asked me if my water broke. And I said, at that point, I said, I don't know, because I wasn't 100% sure. And they said, your water definitely broke because they can see membranes. So um, mixed with the blood and they could test for amniotic fluid. And they did. And they said, that's what it was. Um, They did a sonogram in that moment. And I still heard the heartbeat of my daughter at that time. So to me, I said, like, how could this, like, how could this be? um, they told me there was no chance, there was nothing they can do, because my water had fully ruptured, apparently, so the waterfall that I felt was a full rupture of fluid, and, um, I still can never fully explain this part, because the membrane part just throws me off, but it's just because the rupture was full, it's part of the baby's tissue, and things like that, and my own, um, so after that, They had me, I was in the hospital for over 12 hours. They, after they told me that, they were like, there's nothing we could do because you're not at viability being that you had a full rupture. The lungs have not matured enough for them to be able to do anything. Um, Till this moment, I still question, I know it's true that viability is 24 weeks, but I always still question like, how much can you or can't you do? Um, And then my husband heard me crying around the corner, because I was devastated. They pretty much said there's nothing we can do here. Um, And then he came around and just saw me and he knew. Um, And what's worse about that feeling too is like, because of what we've always been taught, and I feel like I say it all the time, working with you is like, we're made to believe that there's a safe point in pregnancy. So we felt safe enough to tell other people. We did a gender reveal that we didn't really want to do, but our families did. So we did it. Just told everyone, sonogram looks great. Next appointment is like, I forgot what even it would have been. It would have been after 24 weeks. And they were like, your options are this. So all this is going through in our mind. And they're just like, your options are you can deliver naturally or have a DNA. But even though they provide those options, they really were saying, just do the DNE because you've already lost so much blood. There's a higher risk to you of infection and more loss of blood if you deliver naturally. So at that point, operating on fear, my husband and I look at each other like, I guess we're doing the DNE, not even really knowing what a DNE was. Like, I had no idea what it was in that moment because um, I've only heard of DNCs, depending on the... Period of your loss at that time, because that's that's all I knew. Um so, but it was hours. We were there, I didn't even have the DNE done until it was probably like eight hours in, just sitting in a room wondering, and and what's gone through my mind and still does. And I'm trying to make sure I don't cry here, is just like I sat there with the baby, um, with no water, no nothing. Like, are you just slowly dying? Like, I just don't know what's happening in that moment? Like, why wouldn't you want to take me in faster? You know, I was bleeding so much. You just have us sitting here. And I heard her heartbeat right before. So it's like one of those things where it's like, where was the care to help us get through this? Now I will say in that same breath, I was lucky in the sense that the providers there, the doctors were really trying hard to get the best doctor they could to help. Um, So you know, they had someone come in that typically handles losses, um, DNEs, DNCs. That was able to come and do it. And one thing I'm super grateful for is that, which I didn't even know until they offered it. They were like, you know, would you like us to do footprints or, or get something? And I said, yeah. I didn't even know that was an option. So that's one thing I will say of all that. I'm so grateful they were able to do that because it's something I was able to hold on to by getting her footprints um I have that because I I hold that a lot where I'm like should I just have delivered naturally um because I never got to physically hold her but part of that was like this fear like I'm gonna die too um because that's how they made it seem and I think about that still a lot now because part of all that when all that happened they then diagnosed me. They said it was PPROM, which is premature rupture of membranes and incompetent cervix. And then that was just another layer of what does that even mean? Because they never mentioned a cervix issue in a pregnancy. Like I said, it was uneventful. Nothing was ever brought up other than the fact that I had the implantation bleeding. I had early spotting, which I think about now, like, is that a sign that was ignored when I mentioned it? Um, but I don't, they don't do cervical checks regularly when you're in early days of pregnancy. So I'm like, how would you have known or not if that's what was happening? Um, so then, so I went, and I had my loss April 16th, because that's the day I gave birth um, to her. And then we were sent home at 10 p.m. All that had just happened. Um, couldn't sleep, was working through that. And then a few days later, I started to lactate. So here I am thinking like, okay, you're still dealing with the bleeding still. That's it. Nobody warns me that that was a possibility because of the stage I was at, because so I was about 18 weeks pregnant. Um, And my boobs got really hard like cement. And I called the doctor and they were like, oh, it will pass, like it'll pass. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? So now my husband's Googling, we're seeing things about cabbage ice um things like that just trying not to stimulate so that it wouldn't continue but then it goes on where for a while I was like so confused and days that I thought were okay I would be sitting on the couch and then start leaking again um until we just we just kept putting ice like a tight bra we just Google basically helped us get through that part but it's something it's something else that also weighs heavy on me now having now gone through the education of what breastfeeding is and how we lactate. It's like, there were other options that I just wish I was offered. Like, I think at this point, having gone through this now, I would have just pumped or something and donated it or something to make me feel like, I don't know, that there was something more that I could do. Um, having gone through that loss. Cause my body was completely misunderstanding. Like my body thought because I went through this birth that there was a child that needed to be fed and there just wasn't so I was like there was this constant reminder of like your body trying really hard to to care for a baby that's not here and all the doctors are saying like it'll just pass just it'll pass just like everything else like you know you'll be bleeding for a few weeks this is just part of it but it's like it's not part of it because it doesn't happen to everyone so how would I have known that that's the case um and yeah that's what that's what all of that entailed. And then it just, I did testing afterwards. Um, something else they didn't say was that I could have tested her to see if there was anything wrong, but that's something we didn't get to do. Um, I had like hysterosonograms done where they checked your uterus to see and everything came back normal. So at this point, doctors just said like, it was a fluke. It just wouldn't happen again. Um, but there's no way to know that there's no way to know that it will never happen again. So it's like about going through things, finding out what do I need to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, which just made it difficult having a diagnosis. I always say it's my fake diagnosis, even though I know it's not, but P-Prom and incompetent cervix is just saying like, this is the best we could do, even though there was no indication of it. So I'm like, how do we know it was nothing else? But um That was all then, all in the same breath. At the same time, we had to contact the funeral home because that's another thing I am grateful for is that they gave us options. In New York, there is um, a cemetery, I believe, that they said where they will bury babies um, that have been born too early. But my husband and I said, no, Um, what was our other option? So we were allowed to go through like a funeral home on our own. That's another layer to it. That's just so crazy. Because in the same moment that I'm physically experienced my loss, they're like, you have to take care of all this within 24 to 48 hours because we won't hold um, the remains for much longer. And I was like, okay, great. So physically, I'm still going through this and I have to figure that out at the same time. Um, And we were lucky to find a funeral home that would do it. And we were able to get her ashes. So between having her footprints and her ashes here, um, it is something I am grateful to have because I know not everyone has that opportunity um, to get those options offered to them. But it just makes it really difficult to still not know if there was something I could have done more um, or something that my providers could have done differently had they paid attention um, to what I was saying during the pregnancy
0: yeah whenever you did the cremation, um I actually had somebody reach out and asked if I could call funeral homes locally for them, which was really difficult to do, googling like funeral homes and stuff, but um, I am somebody who will like take on anybody else's stuff and mm-hmm. um a lot of places either said they didn't do it or they would do it, and it was like still three hundred to five hundred dollars. did the funeral home that you went through did were they you know, I I imagine if I had a funeral home, I would be like, I will do it at no cost, but I would make literally no living doing this because I would hate to ask right. the bereaved for for the money. Um, and so, did you have to pay for that cremation?
1: We did, and I was shocked at how much it costs. So I it's would expensive. have been happy if it was like three hundred dollars even, but I'll never forget it cost us like seven fifty to to do. And at the time it's something we were like, just okay. Because we're like, no, no, we're not going to not do this. Like we need to do this. But it's also like $750, not knowing what hospital bill I'm about to get, also Mm -hmm. something I thought about. And I was like, okay, we'll just do it. What choice do we have? That's what it costs. But like, I I agree with you. I feel like, again, it's a funeral home. They wouldn't earn money if they just do it for free. But I'm also like, you got to find a balance. This is
0: make it kind of affordable. I mean, yeah, especially when it's abrupt like this. And it's a teeny tiny little baby. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I struggle with that too. And I, I mean, I openly struggle with that, even providing miscarriage support. Like I, you know, I've donated my services before I've, you know, done different things like that because it is really hard, um, But I also, of course, I understand that the funeral home has to make a living as morbid as their job is, but like it is, it is really hard to one call around and have to find some place, but also be burdened with, well, if I I don't spend $800 doing this, what's going to happen to my baby? And that is Mm -hmm. a horrible thing to sit with.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, And you saying how small, that's the part I can't understand too, is like, I get it, you know, when we go to funerals and things like that, like of an adult, uh, there are these large caskets and things like that, that are very expensive. But even when we got the ashes back, when we had to pick them up, and again, we were fine paying it because of that reason. It was like, if we don't, will we regret just letting them do whatever they want with her? It's so such a small box even and and they didn't even tell us that i thought with what we paid we were at least getting some kind of like i don't know regular urn but it was a plastic box with a ziploc inside and i was like this is really messed up and does not help my mental state at the moment no but i guess this is what it is this is this is what it's like
0: yeah I uh, i now have a different you know a different respect for people who um have cremated their loved ones because with my dad passing, we cremated him and they gave him to us in a bag. And I remember thinking, my thought went towards pregnancy loss and thinking like people get their babies back in a bag. And that Mm -hmm. is, of course you, you want to have your baby with you and, but it's still not an easy thing to do and no part of holding The ashes is easy. No part of doing Mm -hmm. this is easy. Every decision is so hard and so morbid and terrible and not something you want to be in the position to do. Like hospitals, why can't they have like a bereaved coordinator that could take care of this stuff? There, I just fixed the problem. (laughs) You you did.
1: And you know what's funny? That's another thing. We had somebody at the hospital reach out to us after. I don't know if she was a bereaved coordinator, but she seemed like social worker or coordinator of some sort where she was helping us in the sense, like get any documents we needed because going through a funeral home is a tricky process too, because at least in New York, you don't get a birth certificate, even if it's going to say like it was in a live birth, but you get a death certificate, which doesn't make sense to me. And you have to get that to like, for the funeral home to do what they need. So I had this coordinator reach out to us, checking on us if we wanted like support. She helped me get the paperwork. I'm like why is this so hard? Like this is hard as it is dealing with the loss and all that. And I have to go through like five people to get documentation. And then it just hurts so much once we even got that paperwork because it's like, it's just a death certificate. So resting with that was also hard because I was like, she was born, but she also died the same day. So it's like, why can't you give me both? I personally would feel better if you gave me both. Because it's like, just looking at a death certificate is just like, it just makes us feel like we made the worst choice. And I know that's not the case, but it's like, she, she was born and she died. Like, why can't we have both? But it's just the way it is because to them, it wasn't a live birth. So they were not going to give a birth certificate. So it's interesting you say that because I do think they should have some kind of coordinators, but it's like the hospital seemed to have someone that did all this and she checked on us. But it was still up to us to do all these phone calls, call the funeral home, like coordinate with them, making sure they're picking up the right baby. Because another thing with that is like my name was all messed up. Who knew that was going to be an issue? But like I got married in 18. I legally changed my name, but the hospital could not use my new name because my ID had my old last name so at one point that was another layer of all this that my husband even struggled with because they would put baby Benitez which was my maiden name and he's like what about me Mm -hmm. and I'm like you see again like why do we have to manage all of this um in addition to going through the loss like all this paperwork gets messed up and you just have to call 20,000 people to figure out what is it you need to to make sure everything's right like I'm glad we were able to name her and we were able to do that. And that's on the paperwork, which was nice. So we made sure like she had the right name and that they did the right stuff. But especially with what you mentioned, like getting, getting any family member in a bag, I really wish somebody would have told me that's the way that's done. Cause I've only ever been to like wakes and things like that. I've never had to pick up ashes. So now my first experience in my life was like, I'm picking up my baby's ashes. And this is what you do. With, like you put people in Ziploc
0: bags. Like it's at all. so very so confused. Dark. So yeah. dark. I also thought, um, I would get like an urn or like, I don't know, a, uh, like a nice thing. And I don't know if, if they did this with your daughter, but they also will put like uh, a note on it that says the remains of, and it has the person's name. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I literally want to be anywhere but here. It's, but again, it, you know, it even goes back to the options that you were laid out in the hospital. Every option is so terrible. This whole situation, there's not mm-hmm. a single thing that really makes it better in the moment. Um, but having somebody who could like make those phone calls for you would have been so much better. I mean, whenever I made those phone calls for the client, like I was in tears and it wasn't even my pregnancy loss because I'm having to use verbiage of a baby has died. Do you do mm-hmm. cremations for babies that have died in utero? And then they asked me the gestation, almost like it, it's like, yeah. they are looking, they're looking for me to tell them like third trimester this, this client in particular, I think was 10 weeks pregnant. And they were like, no, we don't do babies that early. And I'm just like, what? I just like, I, I don't know. It's just so crazy. Yeah. Um, it's such a crazy thing. And, you know, uh, I do, I thinking about how they need a death certificate makes a lot of sense and why they're asking the gestation too, which is so terrible because if you're telling them that your baby has died in utero, or if you've had a miscarriage, a loss, like don't ask for paperwork, just do it. And if right. you're wanting to get paid for it, like don't give any lip about it. Just do what's requested. It's not hard. Right. Exactly. And I didn't understand that either because I
1: remember being asked the gestation. And I was like, why does that matter? But right. I guess to that, I don't know. I honestly, I feel like I went down that rabbit hole and trying to understand the cremation process because I was like, why
0: does it matter? Oh, well, don't do that. Size? Don't understand the cremation process. I,
1: I, I know, but it's so like, I was like, why does it matter? I guess if it's too small. If like a baby's too small. Maybe they can't do it, but I wish there was just more explanation. And again, not something else that we have to go figure out because I remember being asked the same. And I was like, oh God, if he tells me he can't do this, I don't know what to do. And we were making all these decisions the same day. So I can never forget. I can even remember like what we were wearing. I'll never forget it. Cause it's like a person should not have to experience all this at the same time. I'm mm-hmm. not even being given a chance to process the fact that I'm going through a loss because it's like, okay, what procedure do you want? Um, do you want us to cremate or do you want to take care of it on your own? Oh, if you do that, you have to make these three calls. Oh, but they need a death certificate, which we won't have for two weeks. I'm like, how is a person supposed to be able to do all this in one sitting?
0: And, and still mentioned- process what's happening? You mentioned that you were sent home from the hospital at 10 p.m. and my first thought hearing that is how depressing that is. I mean, I'm somebody who struggles with seasonal depression and it's like whenever it's dark earlier I struggle so much with there not being enough sunlight. And so to think of somebody leaving the hospital after giving birth and leaving without their baby at 10 p.m. at night when it is dark, the world is asleep. And you have to go mm-hmm. home to an empty house like how is somebody not sent home with you to like make sure that you're okay? It's just, that is so terrible. That yeah. I, that detail really stuck out to me.
1: Yeah, and, and, and part of it too, like I'll never understand is like they weren't busy. I would get it if like you had a full labor and delivery room and right. 20,000 people were giving birth or like they were emergencies, but they weren't busy. I would hear the nurses in the hallway talking about, nothing important and I would see just people coming in and out the room and again it's like give me some explanation or give me some information you come in here you check somebody you give them the worst news possible um and then you leave like and then don't come back again for hours until the next step needs to happen and then you leave again like there was so much waiting From us getting there, to being told this is what's happening, to being told about the procedure, then waiting hours for the procedure, and then to just be sent along our way to go home and just not know anything. We left knowing nothing.
0: Um, They didn't tell you the the P-Prom, they didn't say anything about the incompetent cervix at that point?
1: They had mentioned it, but no details were given. So I had no idea. Like they mentioned things, I feel like that day in passing, there was a lot of back and forth, um, a lot of doctors in and out. And I didn't get more details about the prom or the incompetent cervix till after. Mm -hmm. Um, Like when I followed up with my OB to like just check to see if everything is okay. Then I got more information. But even after that label, I didn't find out anything until I deep dived, like everyone does in Google. See, right. what is P-Prom? What is incompetent cervix? Like, what does this even mean? And that's why, for a long time, I was like, no, this is a fake diagnosis because nobody ever said my cervix is shortening in that pregnancy. But then that's when I also realized how would they know when all they're doing is sonograms on your belly after a certain point, like, you know, they do transvaginal ultrasounds, but then that stops. And then they just do the ones on your stomach. That's not going to fully show you if you're cervix shortening, right? which is why they then check themselves. Um, And I'm like, this is, this is crazy to me that this could have been happening the whole time. And I would have never known. And that's one thing that sticks out to me because of the back pain I felt that night, like overnight, I was like, that was likely back labor. But because Mm -hmm. they just said, don't go to the ER, nobody's going to help you. I think back now and I'm like, but maybe you could have helped me. Maybe you could have prevented the labor. Cause I've seen, you know, there's different medications to help stop labor
0: because
1: my water didn't break till the morning. So it's like,
0: But they also, they said that the ER can help you, but then once your water, or they didn't even know for sure if your water broke, just that your bleeding had picked up, then they took you to labor and delivery the next day after you're told that you would be sitting in the ER. So that Mm -hmm. wasn't even accurate information, because I'm pretty sure it's after 16 weeks that you can be brought up to labor and delivery. But nobody tells us that. Nobody like at your pregnancy intake appointment, they're like, so here are the things to know. If you go to the hospital, you have to go to the ER until you're 16 weeks. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. after like 13 weeks, we can't do a DNC. So you have this thing called a DNE offered to you if you have a loss. Like nobody prepares you for loss because everybody's afraid to talk about it. Everybody's mm-hmm. afraid to tell you the warning signs. And so we just go into things blind and not because yes. we want to be blind to it um, because nobody is sharing real information with us.
1: Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the reason why, like I I chose to do this with you as a doula is because I felt the same. Like I get it. Pregnancy is we're taught it's joyous. It's great. But I'm like, no, not everyone experiences joy and greatness in their pregnancy because there is loss, but I, I couldn't agree more. Like I would rather when you go to that first appointment, lay out to me every complication, everything that can go wrong, um, I don't want it to happen, but I would rather know that these are possibilities. Cause I feel like, I also feel like it's just not stupid on my part, but like, I always associated the same way because of what we're taught is like miscarriage typically happens in the first three months. Mm-hmm. It's just what seems society has made us believe is like, it only happens in the first three months is how I feel like it's been pushed on us. Right. And then, so going through a second trimester loss, it was so difficult because my husband and I felt the same, like, okay, it's safe now. They said everything's fine. But at the same time, that's not the case. It's just that we don't talk about it. Like other people don't want to publicly talk about like pregnancy is not easy. 20,000 things can go wrong. You hope it doesn't, but they can. Um, So I feel the same. I just really wish that, I don't know what the fear is with doctors. I'm not telling us everything, but Right. People can be more prepared for complications. It will still hurt and still be scary, but at least they're more well-versed in what could happen.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Stephanie, before, um, we close this, I really want to touch a little bit on, um, your daughter, Aubrey and being, you know, uh motherhood after loss. And so in your next pregnancy, um, was anything done different about your care? Any treatment options for the pre-prom and the, I really hate saying incompetent cervix. Um, And in the second episode of this, no, not the second, it's one of the first couple of episodes of this podcast. I talked to a girl who's like trying to start a movement of calling it early cervical opening, which I like so much better. So I'm going to call it that. So did you have any treatment for pre-prom and early cervical opening?
1: Yeah. So automatically I was considered high risk after the second trimester loss. So I saw an MFM and I was given the option to see both an MFM and an, my OB or just the MFM. So I went that route since it just seemed easier to see one doctor the whole time. And he was one that was totally on board with what happened. Cause I find that's another layer, find the right doctor. Um, right. And he did an early circlage, which is really just one stitch or two depending on what they feel you need to keep your cervix closed and that stayed until i was 37 weeks since technically 37 weeks is full term um something else i didn't learn until i had the circle i was like 40 is all i'm thinking about um but that was done and then i was just seen more often so i was seen more doppler checks more i had additional sonograms um, because I know typically you probably get, I don't know, I think three or four, like the anatomy scan, then you get a few others after, and then it stops, and then you just get Doppler checks. I was lucky enough to just get more of the larger sonograms just to make sure um, cervix wasn't shortening and that fluid was the way it was supposed to be. But I will say, I feel like this is, this is where things are just crazy. Um, the circlage did its job, but when I was it was August 8th that I was like, I'm having a lot of back pain. I was like, this seems very familiar. Um, And I was like, is this Braxton Hicks or is this labor? And I was experiencing contractions already. It was August and my due date was October 5th, was my due date. Wow. So I thank goodness my old OB had switched hospitals. So I ended up at a new hospital where they were very attentive. They got me on the monitors right away, gave me medication to help. They were like, Have you been experiencing this a while? And I was like, eh, kind of all day, but I thought it was Braxton Hicks. Um, and apparently, like it's a higher percentage when you're pregnant to get UTIs, which again, I didn't know. I had never mm-hmm. had a UTI in my life, and that's what happened. Um, and that was causing labor. But it's also like, thanks for the circulage, that was in place. They said there was slight opening, but it wasn't gonna go anywhere with the circulage there. Um And then they removed it at 37 and I thought I was going to go into labor. So I was like, that's my thing. They go into early labor, I guess. Um, And I was dilated and everything and still nothing. So I was then induced on my due date.
0: How insane is that? (laughs) You know that. So with my first son, with Cameron, my whole pregnancy, I stressed about my cervix because I was like, I've gone through two losses. I've had so much trauma to it. I'm for sure going to have a problem with my cervix. And I made them check my ultrasound. I was on progesterone to like almost 20 weeks. I was just so nervous. And then I never went into labor on my own. And then when I was induced, my cervix was like, nope, this is not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? I'm worried this whole time for literally me to not go into labor on my own
1: yeah and my mfm said the same because he was like oh yeah you'll go into labor in a few days because when they checked when they removed it i was already dilated and he's like oh yeah she's head down like i was like all right a few days a few days have passed and i was like so i worked so hard to keep you in there all this time (laughs) and now you don't want to show up (laughs) because <laughs> then then I was induced we got to my due date still nothing no movement and I was induced on October 5th and she was born October 6th in the morning
0: insane yeah Ugh, that's so crazy well i'm i'm so glad that you and Aubrey are safe um but obviously very sad for the loss that you've experienced but it has brought you here to me and it's helped you um you know find the space in your heart to give this support to other people um I will put links in the show notes for this for your current groups because I people could listen to this six months from now and I don't want to spit groups that are no longer current Um, but you generally lead a second trimester loss and then we are going to start doing a p-prom loss and um you know, I know the second trimester loss is such a sad group because it's, you know, that's like you're saying the safe zone. We, we Mm -hmm. have this misconception that there's a safe zone. And so people feel really shocked and surprised when they're over 12 weeks and experience loss. So I'm forever grateful that you lead the group of women and that you're there to support them. Um, and I'm so glad that we now have this recorded. That way, people can get to know you and <laughs> feel super confident going into your groups and just know the the kind heart that they're getting. Um, I'm gonna also put a link to your Instagram, which is Bloom and Loss. And um, yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to mention that we haven't gotten to?
1: No, because I feel like we could go so many places, Arden. You mentioned motherhood after loss, and that's, Ugh, another- that's a whole yeah. another. It is. Yeah. That's I've almost I-
0: started a whole separate podcast on motherhood after loss. Cause I was like, it's, it's one of those things that you can't be prepared for and that it still affects it. And so it's so crazy.
1: Yes. If you ever start it, I'm there with you. Cause I feel like I will say that's one thing I'm grateful for. It's why I do as sad as it is. I enjoy running the second trimester group so much because one, it's helped me continue to process as you right. saw here. I still cry. Cause it's like, there's so much I still process now, now having a living child as well. Right. And I had another daughter. So it's like, I just want her to be as as informed as possible. Hopefully this never happens to her, but it's like, there's so much we don't know. And I feel like hearing other people's stories has taught me so much about the care that we're getting and what we're not getting. So I'm grateful for you, Arnon, for doing this. You helped me, myself, get through to a second pregnancy. And um, so I'm just happy to be able to help others feel empowered by Information, since it seems to still be lacking in 2023.